Father, we want to we join our hearts together today. But Lord, we can't do that on our own. We, we can't unite our hearts. God, we can't focus our minds. We can't cause ourselves to, to think what we should think. So Lord, we're asking for a powerful work of your spirit among us. We're praying that as we gather around your word, that your word would be truly proclaimed so your voice would truly be heard. God, we know that you've called us to lift up the rulers and leaders of our land. And so Lord, we pray for those officials who occupy offices in every capacity from local government all the way to federal government, would you give them wisdom and discernment? Lord, would you cause their hearts and minds to be turned like streams of water in your hand? And Lord, I pray that you'd continue to establish a culture of life from every part of the fabric of this nation. Lord, I pray for a national repentance. Lord, I pray for a spirit of humility. I pray, Father, for a a favor to be given to believers who hold elected office, that their voice would be strong and heard. And so, God, we pray for our president our vice president, the members of Congress. We pray for those who serve in various capacities as part of the judicial system from the Supreme Court to federal courts to local courts. Father, we pray for those who rule at uh, state levels and local levels. God, would you give a great and mighty spirit of wisdom to those men and women? And Lord, I ask that you would make yourself known to them in a way that only you can. That you would be glorified by their faith. And I pray for their salvation, Lord, that their hearts would be turned to Jesus. I pray for a spirit of revival in those who occupy those offices. And Lord, I wanna thank you for the blessing that we have in a very unique form of government in the history of the world, that we get to make our voice heard. We get to be a part, a participant in electing local leaders. And so I pray that a government that is by the people, Father, would be, would be accessed by us as believers. Would you give us the power of the Holy Spirit to make wise choices in our voting, to represent you and your name in the choices that we make for those who would govern us, Lord. We love you, we need you. And God, we come to your word and ask, would you give us understanding in the scripture? And Lord, we know we're not the only church, the only family gathered in your name, and so I pray for the churches of this community. This morning, I pray for Leroy Williams at Central Baptist, that you'd fill him with the power of your Holy Spirit. I also, Father, pray for our good friend and brother and pastor, Fayez Ayub, as he's Preaching right now in Tallahassee, God, I pray that you would fill him with your spirit. Give him wisdom and discernment and may that body of Christ there be led by you in the steps you'd have them to take moving forward. Father, we love you and we bless you and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. Would you turn your Bibles to Job 31 if you're not already there? Job 31, about 10 years ago, I was talking with a friend of mine and we were sharing some of what God was doing in our lives and we were talking about the personal Bible studies that we are in and he was actually going through the book of Job in his personal study and he, he shared with me a passage of scripture that really caught his attention and even though that was about 10 years ago, I've never forgotten the conversation that he and I had. We started talking about the dynamics of this particular passage of scripture and how far reaching the implications of God's word in Job 31 actually were for us 
And one of the things that we saw in that as we talked with one another was the impact that this passage of Scripture could have on our thinking about various things, namely the issue of abortion and the sanctity of human life. And so every year since then, as we've approached this Sunday in January where we set aside a time to reflect on the sanctity of human life, uh, I've asked God, God, is this the year that you'd like me to to preach or teach on this passage of Scripture? And so for about nine years now, God has said no. But this, uh, this year, as we were looking at this morning, I, I again prayed, God, would you like for me to teach out of Job 31? And I felt strongly that God gave me the green light this morning. And so we're going to look at Job 31, and we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that isn't often thought of as a, passion for, or a passage for the sanctity of human life. But let's read here in Job chapter 31, and we're going to begin in verse 13. Job is speaking here, and Job says this, if I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when, when, they were brought, when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up, when he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? This is the word of God for us this morning. Let me give you a little bit of context into the book of Job so you can understand maybe where we are at in the Bible. The book of Job tells the true life story of a really good and faithful man whose life totally has fallen apart. He lost everything. His children all died. His wealth was all taken away. His health was destroyed. And ultimately, even his own wife finally says, hey, why don't you just curse God and die? It was a really, really bad scene in the opening stanza of the book of Job. But through all of that, the Bible clearly teaches that Job remained faithful. He he may have shared his pain. He may have honestly said, said, I wish that I could come before God and talk to him about what's going on in my life, but he never ever gave up. He never lost the faith. And soon after his life falls apart, Job has several friends who drop by to comfort him, and they are not a lot of comfort. Those of you who know the story know about these friends we refer to now as Job's comforter. If you're not familiar with the stories, um, I'll just share with you. It's, It's kind of like this. It's kind of like a Florida Gator fan who's trying to get cheered up by his friends who are Alabama fans. You know, I mean, it's like, it's like, hey, hey man, don't even act like you know what I'm going through, right? Don't even act like you know what it's like to cheer for a terrible team who is, who's absolutely ruined their program. You, you don't know what it's like to be stuck in the misery of a once mediocre program that's gone from bad to worse. Am I gone too far? I don't know if I've gone too far. I'm just trying to paint the scene here, contextualize this thing. Here's the deal. It would have been better if they said nothing at all, right? And you're saying, hey, that might be the story of this morning's message, Titus. But here's the, here's the deal. Rather than console Job, these friends show up, and what they do is they try to reason in their mind what's going on. And here's their line of reasoning. God punishes sin through suffering. And so, Job, you're suffering, 
We can do the math. That must mean you've sinned. You guys, you guys see that, right? God punishes sin through suffering. Job, you're suffering. That means you must have sinned. And so Job gets into this conversation with these comforters, these friends, and he shares with them this. Even though he's not perfect, he can't identify a single pattern of sin that would be responsible for his suffering, that God would be punishing about his life. And the, the Bible actually says in all of this, Job did not sin neither did he charge God foolishly. Job was, he was accurate in what he was saying. He said, I I know I'm not perfect, but I don't think this is because I've sinned. And so through the book, Job says, I'll tell you what I would love to do. I'd love to talk face to face with God about this. Uh, Instead of talking to you morons, I'd love to speak, and I'm saying to his friends, not you, not you. (laughs) Now I waved my hand like that. Instead of talking to these guys, he says, listen, I'd love to talk to God face to face. And right before God shows up in the book of Job, Job makes this kind of final appeal by saying, there are quite a few patterns of sin that are really great wickedness. And he says this, I am pretty sure, I'm almost certain, I'm not guilty of these patterns of sin. So Job 31 is a list that Job is making where he's saying these are patterns of really terrible wickedness that I am certain I haven't been guilty of engaging with. Okay, you guys with me? So what we just read there in verses 13 through 15 was Job describing a pattern, something that would be terribly wicked. And what he says there in verse 13 is important for us because it has great implications on all of the sanctity of all human life all human life. So let's work through these verses again. Let's just see what he's saying that would be great wickedness. Look at verse 13. He says, if I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? Stop right there. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, if my servant comes up to me and has a complaint against me, it would be wrong. It would be great wickedness to dismiss that servant and reject his cause, to treat him like somehow he's beneath me, to treat her like somehow she's beneath me and she's less than worthy of respect and dignity and protection and care. Now, Now just think about what he's saying here. Job is writing this in the middle of a culture Not just, it's not 21st century America. This is a culture in which being a servant meant that you were automatically recognized as a lower class of citizen. So some of you guys watched a show called Downton Abbey. Did some of you guys watch Downton Abbey? If you were willing to admit that in church, holy cow. (laughs) Emily and I actually watched that show. Down Abbey set in the first part of the 20th century, and it's this story that talks about a family of English nobility, and it tells the story not only of that family, but the servants who were a part of that family. And one of the things that you get a really clear sense of is this noble class and this servant class has this massive separation between the two. There, there's this sense in which you've got this group up here and this group down here, and the two should never meet in anything other than that subservient attitude. And so Job is writing not only into a culture similar to that, it's even more. Slavery would have been a part of everyday life. So not only would it have been you're a lower class than me, you are actually a kind of being that doesn't necessarily uh, need or, 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 or merit my, my respect or your value 
or my protection or my care. And so, so Job's writing into that culture and he brings up this scenario into that kind of a world and says this, can you imagine if a servant in that culture came to its master and had a problem? And notice what he says there in verse 13. Who is the problem with? With the master, right? He says, can you imagine if a servant came up to me and said, hey, master, I've got a problem. And the master says, what's the problem? And the the servant says, you, you're the problem. Just think about in that mindset, in that culture, not ours, in that culture, what the response would be. Who do you think you are, right? Can you imagine in this culture a master or a noble or a ruling class hearing this scenario of a a servant or a slave coming up to them and saying, I've got a problem with you, sir. They would say, who do you think you are? But I want you to notice something. Job is somewhat answering that question. And it's not so much who do you think you are, it's who does God think you are. Notice something here. Job doesn't determine right and wrong by listening to his culture. Do you realize that? When he brings up this scenario, he doesn't say, hey, this is a cultural issue, so why don't we look to what culture says? He doesn't say this is a legal issue, so let's look at the technicalities of the law. He doesn't even say this is actually a labor dispute, a business issue, so let me figure out what's best for the bottom line. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He looks to God. He says, what does God say? He says, what matters is what God says. And let me just say this. It is great spiritual maturity in us when we are the kind of people who will not base ultimately our decisions and opinions on what culture says, on what media says, on what is best for the bottom line or technically permissible by the laws of our land, spiritually mature, godly, Christ-centered people base their decisions and form their opinions on what God Almighty has to say. And I want you to notice where Job goes when he considers God in this situation. Look at verse 14. He says, what shall I do? In that scenario, if I dismiss their cause and don't show them care and protection and dignity and respect, what shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? Stop right there. When Job starts to think about this scenario of another person, a servant bringing a complaint against him to him, Job says, I have to base my opinion and my decision on something that God has said. And Job refers to what God has said and done. He says, God has formed him. And he specifically points that he was made and formed in the womb. And you guys don't need to bother yourself with the technical jargon here, but that clearly is indicating before he was born, right? You can get that. Job says this, the same God who made Job in his mother's womb did the same work of making that servant in its mother's, in his or hers womb. So get this, when Job is talking about the claim, now now here's the point, when Job's talking about the claim a person has to equal respect and value and protection and care, Job doesn't go back to their birth. You see that? 
He doesn't go back to their birth. He doesn't examine what kind of family they were born into, what kind of circumstance. He doesn't say, well, this one was born into nobility and this one was born into a serving class. He doesn't do that. He doesn't refer to their mental or their physical capacities in their life after birth, does he? No, he goes straight back to God's work in the womb. Job says, the same God who made me a person in my mother's womb and made my servants, people in their mother's womb. That means that work of God gives them equal claim to respect and value and protection and care. You see that? Here's another way of saying that then. Human beings are created by God in the womb and the substance of what they are doesn't change at birth. You get that? Here's what that means. If they are human beings in the womb, then they are human beings beyond the womb. And if they are human beings now, they were human beings then. And that entitles every human being to equal claim of respect, value, protection, and care. And this is a core issue for us. And in our culture, we cannot be silent and still. And I want to give you four implications of this truth, this text, in regard to our thinking about abortion and the sanctity of human life. Here's the first implication this has. The first implication is this. Culture doesn't have the final say. Guys, lawyers, politicians, activists, scientists do not get to determine when life begins or a person is a person. Creating humans is the work of Almighty God. Bestowing life is the work of Almighty God. Determining what is right and what is wrong is the work of Almighty God. And I know it might not be in style for us to start our conversations with God has said in the Bible, but those are the kind of conversations we need to have And I'm not talking about plowing into this community as a bunch of rude, belligerent, thoughtless people. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying we shouldn't talk science. As little science as I understand is amazing to me. And the limited exposure I've had to it fills my heart with awe and wonder at the mighty hand of God and his wisdom and power. I'm not saying we don't talk science. What I am saying is that we should be the kind of people who guard our minds and our hearts from being persuaded by a world that is under the rule of the enemy of God. I'm saying we need to bow down before God as our rightful king and first and foremost on any issue at all, ask this question, what does God have to say? And we need to be proud and grateful and humble to take our cues and our command from God himself through his word, the Bible. Culture doesn't have the final say on this or any other matter. God does. God does. Here's the second implication. Every person is a creation of God. 
You see that in verse 15? Verse 15, Job says that God is the one in the first part, he says, who makes, the same one who made me, God makes and fashions. In the next phrase, he fashions in the womb. God makes and fashions every person in the womb. I love that word fashion. It means to establish or prepare. And Job is saying, God, I'll tell you what he's doing. He's preparing that little person for life outside the womb. You wanna know what's going on in that womb? God in his power is preparing that little person for life. He's establishing everything that's needed to take place in that little person in the womb there. And the question I know some people have is, well, what about the processes that are there? There are obvious scientific processes that can be observed and discovered by scientists and doctors. And I'm saying, what about those processes? Absolutely, they're there. And they are awesome. They're incredible. When Emily and I first were pregnant, and by that I mean Emily was pregnant. I I don't know why I said I was pregnant too, but When Emily and I were expecting our first child, we spent quite a bit of time studying what was going on inside of her womb. And I got to tell you, it blew my mind. It was incredible. The process, just think of the process whereby that single cell divides and then becomes two cells. It divides again and again and again. And then those cells that started out as one begin to specialize into cells that will become a liver or kidneys or lungs or a heart. And then there's that moment, I think it's like 20 days into pregnancy, that those cells that have now started to specialize, there's a part of them that have been specialized as heart cells. And out of nowhere, those cells begin to beat in rhythm. Where's that nowhere? It's not nowhere. It's the hand of God at work in that womb. It's incredible. The processes God has set up and established are there and they're verifiable. But the deal is this, God didn't just create a process to create people. God creates people. And he does it in the womb. And John Piper, a pastor in Minnesota, says this, there are many reasons that abortion is wrong. But ultimately, abortion is wrong because it is an assault on the person-forming work of God in the womb. This is God at work doing what God alone can do, creating a person in his own image. And to attack this little person being completed by God is an attack on God. And to that I say, amen. Every person is a creation of God. Here's the third implication. Every person has an equal claim to respect, value, protection, and care. Since every person is the unique creation of God bearing his image as created image bearers of God, every person then is equally entitled to life and respect. That's the point that Job is making about his servants coming to him. He says every person is equally entitled to be protected and cared for and respect and loved. And a baby that will be born into poverty has as much value and as much right to protection as care as a baby who will be born born into great wealth. A baby that will be born into a single parent home has as much value and a right to protection and care as a baby that will be born into a home with two married and loving parents. A baby with Down syndrome has as much value and right to protection and care as the person who writes the legislation that supposedly protects and cares for women's right to choose. 
We now talk about these babies as though there's this this conversation that's supposedly about viability, these children who are are known to have genetic diseases like like, like Down syndrome or or, or conditions like Down syndrome, that they're not viable. It's another way for us to say they're not valuable. This morning, my, my, my time of worship began like it does almost every single week with a hug from my good friend Chad Mitchell. Um, Chad and I are the same exact age, and we've got a few things in common. Um, We both love college football, but we have a couple of differences. Chad loves the Florida Gators, Oh, and he has something good to say about him every week. And every day, I walk into my house, and I pass over the coolest Ohio State doormat you have ever seen in your entire life. And Chad made me that doormat. He did. And I know what you're wondering. I know what you're wondering. A Gator fan made an Ohio State doormat? Why would he do that? The answer is obvious that the only good use for an Ohio State emblem is to trample your dirty shoes on, right? Right? I know what you're thinking. I work for God. I know what you're thinking. I've talked to Chad, though. That's not why he made it. You know why Chad made me that Ohio State doormat? Because he's my friend. And we love each other. Right, Chad? You know it, brother. Chad has Down syndrome. And that is a condition, but not a definition. Because he is my friend. He is my brother. And Chad Mitchell is a person who has always had an equal claim to respect and value and protection and care as I have had from my own mother's womb. His value gives him viability and every person like him and me. And because Chad Mitchell is a unique creation of God, culture doesn't get the final say on Chad. You couldn't hear that because they were clapping. And my So he wanted you to know that he loves you. <laughs> All right? Chad loves you. I love you. Hey, do you just, hey, Chad, do you just love the Florida Gator fans? Yes. Yeah, you love the Florida Gator fans. What about the rest of us? Do you love us too? Yeah. Yeah, I figured you did. And listen, Chad came with his dad today. His mom wasn't able to come because she's sick. His dad's over here. But let me tell you something. This culture doesn't get the final word on Chad Mitchell. God does. Right? Right? Love you, buddy. Thanks for coming and saying hey to me, man. See you, bud. Every person is the creation of God, and as the creation of God, culture doesn't get the final say on them. God does. Right? God does. 
And because God gets the final say on them and they are His creation, that means that they have an equal claim to the respect and dignity and value and protection of care as anybody else. And I want to add one more group into that. That is true for people who have had an abortion. Some of you in this room feel an us and them because you have a very hard part of your past. When you hear us talk about unborn babies and it multiplies the pain you already feel and you feel singled out even though no one else knows. And I want you to know you are in the same boat as all of us. There is no us in them. There's only us. People who are deeply in need of God's mercy and grace and forgiveness and care. And you need to know something. God equally extends his mercy and grace and forgiveness and care to every man, woman, and child who will bow before Jesus Christ as Lord. You are welcome in this place. And there is forgiveness of sin. And here's the last implication. Fourth, we will give an account before God for what we have done. Do you guys see that right there in this passage? This is Job's primary concern. He says, what will I say when I stand before God? He considers, what will it be like for me to give an account to God for my actions? What will I say? What will I do? What will my answer be when God shows up and asks for the account of why I did what I did? And that's not just true for Job. That's true for all of us. You see, the matter at hand is so much more than just what we believe about abortion. It's what have we done about abortion. Because we will stand before God and we will account for the existence of this in our land. We will stand before God, a higher authority than any government and any leader, and we will give an account to God. And so the question is not in a a room like this necessarily just what do you believe about it. The question is what are you willing to do? And I want to close by giving you a few things that you could do. The first thing is this, and you can write these down if you feel led. The first thing is this, pray. You can pray. That's not a last resort for the people of God. Do you realize that just like creating life, there is a lot of work that only God can do. You and I can't change hearts and minds. You and I can't solve the greatest problems of abortion vulnerable mothers. We cannot transform people by our own power. We can't minister to men, women, and children in our own strength, but we can pray for God to do the work that he can only do in them and in us. We can pray for men, women and children to be delivered from the lies of the enemy concerning this issue. We can pray for our government 
and the rulers of this land. We can pray for the churches and people of this community. And we can pray for the specific men, women, and children we know that God has placed in our life where we live, work, learn, and play who need the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the only power God has given to save from any sin and brokenness. You can pray. Second, you can serve. You can serve, you could pray, you can serve in pro-life ministry. Vicki Davis and her team are here and they are ready to help you put your gifts into practice. We have room for many more volunteers to love on these moms and these dads and these children, both that have been born and those who have yet to be born. And I wanna ask you, would you pray about how God may be calling you to serve in the Agape Pregnancy Center? How he's calling you to be a part of this? Here's, this, here's, here's another way that you could serve. You can celebrate, you can celebrate and support people who've chosen life. You know, one of the great things that we can do in our culture to undercut abortion is to care and serve for women who are vulnerable to abortion. We can celebrate people who've chosen life. I wanna give you a few instances of how you could serve in upcoming ways. We have a ministry called Buddy Break. Buddy Break is for families who have children with special needs, and it's a once a month service and respite care ministry where we're allowed to, to open up our facilities and we can, we can have families who need uh, a break, whether it's to, to go run errands or to do other things and we can care for their family member. We can, we can show the love of Christ that we value human life, all human life by serving those who've chosen life in a culture that would say, you, you know, it might be better if, if you terminated this pregnancy because of the condition of your child. We need to step into a role of loving them well. You may want to sign up for Buddy Break. There's, uh, there, there's information, I think, on the homepage of our website about that. Another ministry that we have every week is a ministry called Special Gathering. Um, while we are in here worshiping, special gathering meets in our chapel. It's a worship service that's geared for individuals with special needs. You guys could be a part of that. There's also Night to Shine coming up. That's a one-time event. Some of you I know are so overloaded with other regular ways to serve. You might want to step into a one-time event. Night to Shine is coming up, and this is for us to love and care for and celebrate with a red carpet dance in celebration to men, women, and children with special needs. If you haven't signed up for uh, night to shine, be a part of that. Here's the fourth thing. Not only can you serve and celebrate and pray, would you consider adoption and foster care? Adoption and foster care. If we value each and every life, then the question is this. Shouldn't the church of Jesus Christ stand ready to care for the babies that are coming into homes that aren't able or willing to care for them? Would you pray about adoption and foster care? and how God might call you to step into that. Here's the last thing to do in response to this. Would you give and receive forgiveness? Give and receive forgiveness. In this matter, we all stand in equal footing in need of God's great grace and mercy. All of us bear responsibility in some way, shape, or form. If you had an abortion or multiple abortions in your life, I want you to know that God is very faithful and kind. The Bible says that if we will confess our sin, agree with him that our sin is sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Would you call on Jesus and trust him for your forgiveness? Some of us, though, have 
have to confess that we have been apathetic. When we think of nearly 50 million children aborted since Roe versus Wade, we are in need of God's forgiveness for our apathy, for our prayerlessness, for our lack of service. And God is faithful to forgive. So before we go into this day, would you bow your heads? And let's enter into a time of prayer. And would you begin by praising God, by thanking Him for His miracle-working power in creating humans, people, you and me. That He's strong and mighty and can do what no one else can do. Would you ask God to do a powerful work changing hearts and minds in our nation concerning this subject, concerning unborn children and the value that they have? Would you pray that God would give you wisdom to know any way that he may be calling you to serve as an expression of your value of human life, your celebration of God's work? Would you ask him if he is calling you to serve in buddy break once a month caring for these families. And if he's stirring your heart to maybe even just get more information, would you commit to him that you'll take the next step by reaching out to those leaders? Would you ask him if he's calling you to serve in special gathering each week or once a month to enable a time of worship for individuals with special needs? Would you ask if he's calling you to serve in night, for sh- night to shine? If you haven't already committed, would you commit to sign up for that? Would you be willing to pray about adoption and foster care? That we would do more than talk about the sanctity of human life. We would live it out by caring for people in our homes. And would you praise Jesus for his forgiveness? Praise him that when we stand before God one day, we can be confident that we are accepted by God Almighty, not because our record shows that we did it right, but because God is merciful to forgive us our sin. Praise God for his grace in Jesus. Lord, we love you and we need you. Father, we are at times paralyzed by the reality that millions of babies are aborted each year 
not just in this nation, but around the world. Father, we acknowledge that is a great wickedness. It's a great wickedness. It's a blight in our land. Father, we ask that you would humble us, that you would stir our hearts to see those babies as you see them, to love them, to pray, seek your face, your care. Father, would you move us out of our comfort zones to serve and love and celebrate people who are created in your image to do so for your glory and your gospel. And Lord, I pray, Father, for all those here, both men and women, who've been part of a choice to step forward into an abortion. God, I pray that you would overwhelm them with your mercy and grace, your holy, just, righteous mercy and grace that's given to us in Jesus. Cleanse our hearts for our apathy, Lord. Stir us to more than feeling something. Father, I pray you would stir us to do it. Oh, we love you. Father, we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.